The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Andrew Gross, breaking news with Eileen Bell and sports with Morley Scott. This is the Afternoon News on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the 6.30 Ched Afternoon News. Hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas, an opportunity to spend time with family and friends. I have bad news and good news for you all today. Bad news, of course, we're all back to work. Good news, it's already Wednesday. And the best news, we have a short show today. The Edmonton Oilers take on the Winnipeg Jets. City Ford Faceoff show starts at 430 Puck drops at 6. The Oilers look to extend their four-game winning streak. Winnipeg, by the way, a little bit of trivia for you, is the only Western Conference opponent against whom McDavid has never scored a goal. As you might have guessed, because you heard my voice first, Jalen and I on vacation this week. She'll return January 8th. And I've got a full and packed show for you this afternoon in the little time that I have with you. Uh, coming up in this afternoon, we're going to be joined by Oz Strook. He's a security expert with ADT. He's going to talk about home security. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I turned my house into a fortress over the Christmas break. And I'm excited to talk about all the options available for the rest of you. Todd Hirsch from uh, ETB Financial will join us. Of course, you know, he's the senior economist over there. And he, uh, by his own decision and suggestion, wanted to have a, quote, freewheeling conversation about the economy. So I don't know what that entails, but we'll find out. And if you're wondering when this weather is going to break, Chief Meteorologist with uh, Global Edmonton, Jesse Beyer, will join me this afternoon as well. Right now, though, I want to get things going. Uh, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for quite some time. I'm joined by Chris Cherchansky, Cherchansky, sorry about that, Chris, uh, President for ATB Investor Services. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Andrew. Let's get that mic right in front of you. There we go. Perfect. Ah, there you go. Now, I've been looking forward to this because this is a topic that scares me, uh, and I think it probably scares a lot of people. And I thought, uh, and I was told by reputation that you're uh, young, um, smart, and you can dummy it down for guys like me. So far, I can only attest to the fact that you're young. <laughs> you're doing very well in your career. Mom must be proud. Yes, Mom's very proud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I wanted to, I'm going to have you for the whole hour if you don't uh, escape before then. So I wanted to sort of set this up step by step with you. Because in my little straw poll among friends and family, when I asked them about investments and why they don't have any, um, I got two reasons. One, they don't understand investments, period. And number two, they don't feel as though they have enough money to get the interest of an investment advisor. So can we start there? Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I think the interesting thing is over the last sort of decade, investing has actually become more and more complicated than it was one or two decades before. There's now thousands of different products, new products being developed, you know, at a rate that we've never seen. And really, the disclosures that go along with these products, you sometimes need a law degree to try and figure out what they say. So I think 
people get confused, they get, you know, it's complicated, so they just put it aside and delay. Um, and then your other point around, do I have enough money to work with an advisor? I think a lot of people don't believe they have enough money, so they just don't spend the time and go and try and meet an advisor. Well, let's talk about the second point first then, and then cycle back to the first. How much money do you need to start some kind of investment portfolio? You know, you don't need any any money to really start. What you need is the commitment to put money in on an ongoing basis. So you can start, you know, with uh, as much or as little as $100, but just on an ongoing basis, continue to put money in. And at that time, your situation is probably fairly simplistic, the options, and it's really just about getting started. Uh, at that time. So you don't need to have 100000 50000 Well, that was the figure that popped dollars. into my head when I... Was 100000 $100,000. Because you're, you're talking about significant returns, and it depends, I suppose, where you are in your life. If you're in your 40s or 50s, 60s, you're probably thinking about, well, I need a significant amount of money to leverage any kind of profit in a short period of time to allow me to retire. If you're nine years old, uh, $50 a month would probably be great. You'd have that retirement when you were 60. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens to a lot of people is later in life, if they look and they don't have any money set aside already, they think it's too late. So we'll always tell people it's never too late to get started. The reality is the impact that that's going to have if you start when you're 50 versus when you start when you're 20, to your point, uh, is not going to be to the same degree. But the biggest thing is to get started. Okay, and therein lies the next problem, because I think... Nobody knows, and I shouldn't say nobody, lots of people. (laughs) I think a lot of people don't know how to get started because our only um, experience with investments is people who've reached out to us to sell a specific product. And, And really even using the term investment, I'm not sure how many understand what that is. Am I investing in a bond? Am I investing in a stock? Am I... What is it exactly that I'm investing in? So what's the most common investment tool? Is it a mutual fund? Mutual funds would be one of the most common tools. Uh, and really what a mutual fund does is it, it allows people from all across Canada, all across Alberta to pool their money together to be able to get benefits that they wouldn't be on their own. So if I only had, let's say, $1,000 to get started, for me to go out and to actually buy shares of 10 or 12 companies would be very difficult. But as part of a mutual fund, I'm able to get access to those 10 or 12 companies or typically more or through an ETF would give me the same access. So really those are are popular structures that allow you to get started with not a lot of money to get some of the benefits of owning you know, more than one single company or one single bond. And in a mutual fund situation, am I dictating what I want those funds to go towards or am I handing over that $1,000 and the investment advisor is telling me what those funds will go towards? So there's, there's two things that I'll just distinguish there. One is the mutual fund itself. So the mutual fund would be managed by a portfolio manager. And that portfolio manager within a set set guidelines that have been established is able to manage that money. So if it's a Canadian equity fund or a fund that would invest into Canadian stocks, um, maybe it's more specific of Canadian energy stocks or large Canadian companies, 
within that parameter, that portfolio manager decides what to buy and sell. So you're not able to phone the portfolio manager up and say, I think you should sell Telus. <laughs> buy, buy Canadian Corus, Tire, right? right there. Yeah, whatever okay. it may be. But your investment advisor would sit down with you and take the time to understand what you're trying to achieve, what your goals all are, and then would recommend whether it's a mutual fund, whether it's an ETF, whether it's an individual stock, bond, or GIC, whatever's most appropriate and for e- you. ETFs, uh, generally speaking, are much cheaper than mutual funds, right? Yeah, so depending on the ETF, if you're looking at a broad-based ETF that's just uh, investing in the, in the Canadian stock market, they tend to be cheaper than a mutual fund. And ETF stands for? Exchange-traded fund. Okay. One of the interesting things that uh, you have to do, though, when you're investing in an ETF, what's not typically part of that is what you're paying your advisor. Whereas with a mutual fund, you know, you pay one fee, but part of that goes to the advisor and part of it goes to the mutual fund company. With an ETF, it just goes to the ETF company. So there's no Mm. fee for an advisor as part of that. So it's not quite an apples to apples comparison. Gotcha. So now my ambition here this afternoon was to overcome some myths. So the first myth that we overcame was the fact that you don't need $100,000 to get going. But the second myth, and perhaps it's not a myth, and that's the reason we haven't been able to overcome it yet, is that it's complicated. So I would assume to uncomplicated, you that's where you would recommend an advisor, um, somebody who you trusted, somebody whose reputation perhaps preceded them or whose institution preceded, uh, whose institution's reputation preceded them but I, I'm going to make it more complicated. <laughs> What's the difference between an advisor and an advisor? Yeah, so that, uh, it was about six months ago, I think CBC did a, a news article on advisor versus advisor. And really the difference is one actually has a fiduciary relationship. Um, but a fiduciary relationship can exist without um, the advisor title itself. Um, Really, when you have a fiduciary relationship, it's set out and prescribed that, you know, you have to be held to a higher standard in terms of um, looking out for your client's best interests. So that that fiduciary responsibility is because they're able to make investments without your approval? Correct. It's a discretionary uh, service. So which one's that, the er or the or? It's the or. Okay. So they're able to make decisions on your behalf once you would establish what sort of here are the parameters that were set forward. They're able to go and make decisions on your behalf with that relationship. And why would you choose one over the other? I think the big thing is one is not better than the other. I think a lot of people uh, will look and say, because this person is a fiduciary, that's a, you know, that's better. Uh, I think what's most important, whether if you're do, dealing with an advisor or an advisor, is that you're confident that they're looking after your best interest, that you've asked them uh, difficult questions in terms of, you know, what are the fees that uh, you're going to be paying? Do they have any conflicts of interest that would put their interests ahead of yours? Um, how are they compensated? I think all of those questions, you know, I think if you get great answers to those and answers that, you know, you believe in, I don't think it matters whether that 
advisor or advisor has that fiduciary relationship so okay. that you know they're looking after your best interests. So at this point, the answer, and we're going to clear this up, could be blue, and I wouldn't know <laughs> <laughs> if that was a good or a bad answer. So we'll find out what the questions are you met, just mentioned. We'll go over those, what the answers probably should be to give you that sense of uh, comfort and security. We're talking to Chris Turchansky, the president at ATB Investor Services. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk fees. With all-wheel drive, anyone can power through winter. But right, Welcome back to the 6.30 Chet Afternoon News. We've been talking with Chris... Tr- I, I don't know why I'm having trouble. It's, it's a complicated, <laughs> but it's the tur part that I'm having trouble. Turchansky, Irish... <laughs> That's a good Irish name. <laughs> uh, president uh, down at ATB Financial Investor Services. So before the break, we were talking about picking an investor and the difference between investor and investor. Um, but you mentioned fees. And I saw a survey recently, and I'm, I'm probably making up the number a little bit here, but among those smart enough um, to be involved in investments... Uh, so these are not the people who have no idea what they should be doing with their money. But among those people who actually were using invest, uh, investment advisors, um, 43% didn't know what fees they were paying and they didn't know why they were paying them. So there's a lot of different, there's at least four different ways to pay your fees, right? Yeah, there's um, different ways that uh, your fees will be paid, whether it's as part of, if it's in a mutual fund, as part of the, the fund itself. If you're in a fee-based account, it can be paid separate, can be paid on a per-transaction basis. So there's a number of different ways that uh, you can pay fees, which I think sort of ties into your comment of, you know, only 43% of people know that they're paying fees. Is It's complicated. And as an industry, we haven't done a very good job to simplify things for investors. And as a result, they don't know what they're paying fees for. They don't know how much they're paying. And I think as an industry, we have to take that on and we have to do a better job to educate people on what fees they are paying. And then people can make informed decisions in terms of, you know, am I getting value for what I'm paying for? Well, an excellent point. But, you know, investment services are, are an offshoot of banking. And I would suggest to you that the number would be even higher if you were to ask people what they paid in bank charges last year or visa charges or handling charges or it's all there. It's all there to read, but who reads it? But with this, it's a little more personal, I think, because you're taking what you believe to be your nest egg, attempting to make it bigger, and you'd like to know... um, if you're guaranteed to make money, for example, do you only pay fees if you do make money? Are you paying up front? Are you paying when you take it out? Are you? Are those all discretionary? Uh, can I tell my investment advisor how I want to pay? Or is it this is how we work depending on who the advisor is or what the institution is? How does that work? Yeah, for the majority, it's this is how it works. And, and I think what's important is an advisor has that conversation with an investor up front so that they can make an informed decision if they want to continue. If that, you know, how fees are charged doesn't work for that investor, um, they can perhaps look at uh, another alternative. They can look at different products, different solutions. But I think that the main thing is that those conversations are are happening. So that number of 43% starts to move so that more people are informed. Because the other interesting thing about fees in the investment industry is, 
You know, they're different than anything else. If I go to buy a car and then, you know, if I'm paying $20,000 versus $40,000, I may debate whether I need the added features and benefits, but I know the $40,000 car is going to have added features and benefits. Whereas in the investment world, the more you pay, you know, the less you get in return. So if you're Mm. paying 3%, um, most studies will show the more you pay, the less you get back in return. So uh, it's interesting, not very many people know the fees they pay. And you have this relationship that uh, the more you pay, the less you get back. Interesting. So how do I know then, uh, let's say that in, in the first 15 to 20 minutes of this conversation between you and I, we've talked at least one person into trying to put some money in investments. Um, and we've, uh, we've gotten rid of the fear that $50 isn't enough to start with or whatever. Um, but as I mentioned before the break, I suppose there's questions you should be asking. You went over some questions to ask your investment advisor, but I don't know what the answer is supposed to be. So let's take some of those questions that you mentioned. Uh, You said, how do I know you're acting in my best interest? So how do I know you're acting in my best interest? If I'm sitting across the desk from you right now over at ATB, how do I know that? How do I know you're not pushing a product that ATB wants? So a couple of things. I should be uh, very willing and open to telling you any potential conflicts of interest that I have. Give me an example of a conflict of interest. That I'm getting compensated for selling you product A over product B. So product A pays So there's some incentive program for you to sell A. Versus product B. Or I've got a relationship with, you know, product A um, and I don't have with product B and that would lead me to recommend product A over product B so that I'm willing to talk to you about any conflicts or anything that you would perceive would cloud my judgment in the advice that I'm providing you. And if someone says they're 100% free of conflicts of interest and I have no conflicts, and I think that's where the other questions in terms of, you know, how are you compensated Hmm. becomes a critical question that uh, an advisor should be proactively talking to their clients about. But if they're not, uh, all investors should ask their advisor how they are compensated. Um, and which really starts to get back to that conflicts of interest question is, are there any conflicts of interest uh, from there? All right. We've talked about fees and understanding fees, and I don't want to get tied up too much in the terminology, but that's another of the question. How are you being charged or how will I be charged rather with my investment money? But there's front end load or initial sales. There's back end load. There's low load or low sales charge. There's no load. Um, but at the end of the day, if I'm sitting in front of an invest- investment advisor, I can just say, this is what I've got. This is what I'm prepared to put in each month. You tell me what that's going to cost me. And he should, he, she should be able to tell me that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really, we've seen in the last year, the regulators have seen that same number that you talked about. And, you know, def- depending on what study you see, sometimes the number is even lower that investors have no idea the fees they're paying. Some investors don't believe they're paying any fees at all. Oh. Um, so from a regulation standpoint, last year, they added in further disclosures that, to make sure that investors are aware. The problem with disclosures and, you know, when people receive their statements in the mail or online, unless you spend the time to go through them, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily do any good. And then you just quickly rattled off six or seven different types of fees. Just listing those doesn't really help someone understand. (laughs) So an advisor's job is really to sit down and talk and explain, you know, what is the difference between 
low load or initial load, back end load, front load, no load? Why is one better than the other? How do they work? And at the end of the day, what is it going to cost me per $1,000 or if I've invested $100,000, a million dollars, whatever it is, what's that total dollar amount at the end of the year that I'm going to pay? Okay. And the last is uh, the philosophy of the advisor himself. So I would assume that relates to how aggressive I want him to be or what type of investments I'm looking for. So high risk, uh, high pay or that sort of thing. Is that... So I think it's important that the advisor spends time to really understand you so that, you know, they're able to make uh, a recommendation that's sort of suited to, you know, your risk tolerance in terms of what you're trying to achieve, your goals and your time horizon and all of those things. But overall, what's the firm's investment philosophy? How does the firm manage money, I think, is a real important question for an investor to ask their advisor. You know, do they believe in diversification? Do they, you know, try and time the market? What are the different sort of key tenants to how they're going to invest their money, your money, once they've determined the type of investor you are. Okay. We have to take a break now for news headlines. We're uh, going to ask Chris uh, Terchansky to stay in the uh, studio with us. Uh, coming out uh, after this, in our next half hour, we're actually going to break it down even further for you, give you some recommendations on what you should be doing uh, or what you should be advising your children to do right now, take you through your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, and finally all the way up to my age and uh, what you can still do to save for that retirement. Conversation with Jalen Nye and Andrew Gross. Breaking news with Eileen Bell and sports with Morley Scott. This is the Afternoon News on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. All right, welcome back to the second half hour of this, a short 6.30 Chet Afternoon News. The City Ford Faceoff Show coming up at 4.30. The puck drops in Winnipeg at 6. We've been talking to Chris Terchansky, president of ATB Investor Services. I think we got through all the terminology and all the what-ifs and uh, what are you going to do with that uh, conversation. So let's get right down to brass tacks now. So I have already missed this boat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because my children are now in their 20s. I mean, I, I've missed the under 20 boat. So if I'm a young parent right now, and you mentioned before that there's no minimum amount of money, generally speaking, what should my young kids, or what should I be investing on behalf of my young kids to ensure that they have the ability to make a decision in their 20s to take that money out and buy a house or keep it in there and retire with it or simply become filthy and stupidly rich? What what should they be doing and how much should they be putting in? So first, I, you know, I think it's important to have conversation with your kids about money. That's one of the things and whether it's with our kids, whether it with our spouse or partner, is we avoid conversations around money because money's emotional, money you know, brings up feelings. So we avoid those conversations. So, you know, I think all parents should have conversations with their kids about money. Uh, My wife and I have two kids who are 12 and nine, two daughters. And uh, it's what are their portfolios look like? (laughs) (laughs) It's really easy to say. We always joke that we were the best uh, parents without kids in the world. And then suddenly (laughs) when you have kids, things change. But I think having that conversation with your kids about money is critically important. So what's the conversation you're talking about, though? Because, you know, you mentioned in the first half hour how the industry has changed and how 
you know, in many ways, you're trying to change it back to something simpler. But you know what? Parenting has changed, too, because the second I could sign my name, my dad took me to the bank where he knew the bank manager, and he opened me up a savings account, and I got my little book, and I was told by the bank manager, you put in $10 a week, he told me, and you will retire at 50. That I, Now, I didn't do it. I wish I'd followed that <laughs> advice. Uh, but parenting has changed where we don't, as you just mentioned, we don't think now that maybe, or perhaps we think in a, uh, you know, in some way we're always going to look after our children and if they need money, they can just come to us or whatever the idea is. But we don't do those fundamental things with kids that we used to do. Like I say, five kids in my family, all five of us had a savings account of some kind because we knew it was important to save. Yeah, I think that's the critical thing. I think a lot of times to simplify to simplify investing, it's getting back to the basics. It's talking to your kids about the importance of savings, the importance of putting money away on a regular basis, the importance of the value of money, the, the you know, the importance of saving, whether it's saving for clothes or saving for a toy or saving for you know, something when they're in their 20s, a car, or their first car, whatever it, whatever it is, it's having that conversation that mm. your dad had with you yeah. and, and taking them down to explain to them the value of that and what that means. So as an investment tool for a small child, you would, you would recommend then simply a savings account? I think, you know, to encourage a child to have the right behavior for them, it's a savings account to, to help them you know, get in the discipline of savings, knowing of saving, knowing what, what they have to put away, knowing the value of that. And then as a parent, if you want to start a savings for your kids, whether that's, you know, if your kids uh, potentially are going to university or to college, I would <laughs> save in an RESP, which... Right. Registered Education Savings I laugh because, plan, it, right? you know, I'm a father of four, so you really have to... That's a bit of a gamble. <laughs> you, you, you take a look at the kid licking his building blocks. Well, he's not going to university. <laughs> yeah, maybe two out of four or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe if you do that. invest in something like a registered education savings plan and the child doesn't go to university, is that the kind of thing that you can take the money right back out again? Yeah, you can take the money out. The, the grant that the government gave you, is what you lose because you know our government doesn't give us anything for free and uh, nor should they so you know the 20 percent grant that you receive if your children don't go to university or college um, then you lose that part but any money that you put in um, you'll get back so you okay don't have to worry from that. so we're talking about two things with the children then we'll move on to the 20 so a very basic uh, savings plan or, or savings account uh, just to establish that habit of putting money aside. The parent registering an education saving plan or something similar to that. Bonds, I suppose. My, do they still have Canada bonds? I Canada think I, savings bonds? Yeah, Canada no, savings no, bonds. No, I don't think they do anymore. Is right? there anything but, like that? Because remember, that used to be the go-to gift for aunts to give, uh, you know, to give their nephews and nieces was a, you know, $100 or $50 Canada savings bond, but you had to hold on to it for five years or something to See the, is there any vehicle like that still available? Yeah, you can get a, a GIC, a term deposit that would do uh, very similar to a Canada Savings Bond sort of program for sure. Okay. Um, the, the difference, and that's I think what you're talking about, which was great about Canada Savings Bonds, is you would actually get that's physical right. bond back. That's got to be probably almost 20 years ago you would get that, but you would see it. Whereas it's uh, when, gr- you know, grandma and grandpa or, or aunt or uncle 
you know, just give you a, a printout of a bank statement saying they've you've got a GIC at the bank. It's not <laughs> yeah. quite the same thing. It's not as sexy for no. sure. All right, we've got to take a quick break. Uh, speaking of making money, we've got to do that here as well. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation. We'll take you in now into your 20s, 30s, and 40s. Continue with the conversation with uh, Chris Turchansky. Man, can you change your name before the next time? <laughs> I don't know why I'm having trouble with that. From ATB Investor Services, the president of ATB Investor Services uh, under the umbrella, of course, of ATB Financial. So we're talking about what you can do for your kids. Now, let's talk about, let's combine 20s and 30s, because here's the thing. Like any great parent or advisor will tell you, uh, put away some amount of money through your 20s and 30s, and it will make money and bode well for you and it will make your 50s and 60s great but none of us uh, had any money in our 20s and 30s we were uh, saving for a house saving for a car we were having kids there it seemed like there was never the extra money to put in so what's the painless investment in your 20s and 30s or is there one yeah i don't know if it's painless <laughs> but it is you know, having that discipline to put money away on a regular basis, whether it comes directly from your paycheck or as soon as it hits your bank account. And then, you know, you just adjust your lifestyle once that payment has gone through. Because, you know, everyone talks about the importance of starting early and the, the impact of compounding and, and how that can have, but it's really difficult to do. We were just talking before off air about one of the challenges when you're in your 20s and 30s, retirement is. 30 some yeah. odd years away and it you know it's it's hard to imagine you know saving for that when you have real needs today and sometimes those are real needs sometimes those are things you just want to do so trying to establish that discipline is is really critical and it was interesting i read uh i read a piece about warren buffett who's sort of the guru of all investing mm -hmm. and I didn't, I didn't realize this at the time, but Warren Buffett got serious about investing when he was 10 years old. Um, I'm not shocked to hear that, yeah, honestly. You know, at 10 years old, I think I was still had the dream I was going to play hockey somewhere <laughs> or something. But, I still have that dream, Chris. <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, then they said if he would have waited till he was 22 uh, to get started, what would be the difference in what he's worth today? And if he would have started at 22 versus 10, he would be worth, you know, a poultry $1.9 billion today versus the 80 some billion hmm. dollars he's worth, you know, and that's him doing the exact same thing. And that's just the benefit of him starting early. So having that discipline to start, whether it's coming right off your paycheck, whether it comes into your account and you put it away is absolutely critical in your 20s and 30s. The other piece is, is sort of debt management because you talked about in your mm -hmm. 20s and 30s, you're starting a family, you're, you're um, looking to buy a house. What does that look like? And it's how do you sort of minimize bad debt and bad debt, credit card debt? How do you focus on paying off high interest debt and really utilize debt that if you want to call it good debt, um, you know, mortgage or mm -hmm. debt that something that will likely appreciate in value yeah, right exactly so i think those are the big keys in your 20s and 30s is you know doing it early and and having it become very very simple and then also you know focusing on paying down bad debt is that uh, i can't imagine that the answer to this is yes but i'll ask <laughs> is that a component of what a financial advisor would do i mean if i go in and see one and say well i'm 
trying to buy a house and I have this much in debt, or is that of no consequence to an advisor? He or she simply wants to know what money you have available to put into investments. No, an advisor's job is to help you your financially succeed, whether, you know, at different points in your life, debt management is probably more important than, you know, investing when you're just getting started and you're just putting, you know, a small amount away. I remember when I first started, uh, my first job, you know, uh, was at a bank and that first day someone told me to put $25 away every paycheck and the amounts changed, but I've continued to do that. But at that time, that was an amount that I could manage, but it was really focused on you know, how do I pay off student loans? How do I, oh God, I save those. money for a house? Then how do I manage my debt for my house and, and all of that? So over time, it just changes from sort of spending more conversations around, you know, how are you utilizing debt properly? to how are you investing. Hmm. So when you make that decision in your 20s and 30s, are you looking at what you want the return to be at a specific time? Or are you looking at, you know, I have so many working years left that I'm willing to take a higher risk and do something a little different with my money? I mean, what should be the thought process? I guess it depends on the investor and what he wants to do. But what should be, in your mind, the thought process in your 20s and 30s? What should I be trying to accomplish? So in your 20s and 30s, I'll say the biggest thing is to get started, right? Too often, I've had a chance to talk to a lot of people that they were in to meet and there was all these questions and they had this homework to go back and do and 10 years later, they didn't go back. So I'll say the biggest thing is to start. And in terms of if you're saving for retirement in your 20s and 30s, you've got a long time. You've got 30, 40 years for that money to grow. So you should be able to sort of withstand different market cycles. So typically your portfolio would have more risky investments Mm. um, because you're further away from retirement. So you can withstand more volatility in in the sort of the market. Um, But it also depends on yourself. Some people don't want any volatility whatsoever. Some people are more comfortable with it. I think the biggest thing Mm. is your time horizon is further out. Yeah. You can sort of weather different cycles. So could I go in, and then we'll take our break here and uh, wrap things up with Chris uh, Turchansky. Can I go into a financial advisor and say, I want to have this much money when I'm 65. Now get me there. Or yeah. I can do that? So yeah, you know, they'll put together a plan for you. Um, that plan has to be realistic. If you want to have $2 million or $10 million when you retire and you're only willing to put, you know, $100 <laughs> a month away, right. they're going to tell you either, you know, that's just not possible. Um, but what they will do is it's a starting point for a conversation in terms of what is possible in terms of, you know, what that nest egg will look like at retirement. So if you have an amount in your in your head that you want, let's say a million dollars at retirement, and you're putting this away, you know, a good advisor will spend time to educate and say, okay, you know, right now you can only afford to put this and, you know, over the years as you start to make more money, as you advance in your career, by putting more away, this becomes possible. But if you leave it at where it is today... Um, this, this is, is where you'll be. Okay. I think at this point, for me to get that $2 million by retirement, I have to put in about $2 million a year. So <laughs> <laughs> a little out of my reach right now, but you never know. All right, I'll take one more break and then wrap things up. All right. 
uh, it's gone by too quickly. We're almost out of time. Let me see how much more I can give. Just about uh, four minutes. So we didn't quite get to where I think a lot of people wanted us to get to. So let's get to there now. So if we're in our 40s, late 40s, 50s, we're in our 60s, and we're realizing for the first time that we're not going to win the lottery. So (laughs) (laughs) strategy done. Exactly. Like that plan up in smoke. Is there still time? What can somebody do at that stage in their life? Or is there anything they can do? Yeah, I think as we talked earlier, there's it's never too late. The impact that when you're starting sort of putting money away in your 50s isn't going to be the same as when you started early, but it's never too late. So if you have, you know, the ability at that time in your life to put money away, I would encourage everyone to to start and to sit down with an advisor and talk because the reality, whether you've put money away or not, by the time you're in your 50s, you're going to have to have a plan to fund your retirement or, or to fund your lifestyle after you've stopped working, whether that's you know, going to be relying on the government CPP and old age security and what that looks like. So uh, I think it's always a good time to sit down and talk with someone and, and get started. It's never too late. Would you ever advise an individual? Because a lot of people's savings plan or plan for retirement is the equity they have in their house. So they think about, well, when the kids are old enough and they move out and I no longer need this three or four bedroom home and I've been paying a mortgage for 25, 30 years now, so the equity has built up or it's paid off, I'm just going to sell that house and I'm going to live on that. Um, Is that in any way a sound financial plan or would you suggest, for example, that, hey, if you want to downsize and go to an apartment, maybe you want to take that money and now put that into some kind of investment that will pay off over years? Yeah, I think it's... You know, if you've got equity built up in your house and, you know, as part of your retirement, you're looking to downsize and then what do you have, um, you know, that money that was built up in your house, where do you want to put that? How do you sort of use that to maximize your retirement is is a great strategy to if you're in your 30s and say that's your only strategy, I would be uh, careful about that. Um, I would also be careful about Everyone that has a mortgage and is paying off their mortgage will say, well, as soon as I'm done paying my mortgage, I'll start putting money mm. away in investments. And the challenge with that is you've worked so hard to pay off your mortgage. Generally speaking, we want to reward ourselves. So we don't immediately go from paying off our mortgage to putting money away for retirement. Just human nature, that's very difficult. So it's finding that balance to try and do both. Uh, is what's really critical. You know, it's funny. I checked. uh, Now, I didn't have any kind of uh, retirement savings plan until I came into radio. And as long as I've been here, I wasn't always an employee. I was a contractor for the first few years. So it was only two or three years ago that I actually started contributing to a retirement fund. And I brought it up on the computer the other day and looked at it and thought, hey, that's okay. Like, that's actually, you know, in a short period of time, that's going to pay off. And then I realized that was per year and not per month. It was, <laughs> I think it was $3,900. I thought, oh, well, per month, that would be okay. Per year, uh, yeah, probably not so good. So I guess uh, at the end of the day, uh, what we need to uh, do is plan early. Um, any amount of money is acceptable to go into an investment advisor, ask questions, get suitable answers. There should be a comfort level uh, with whoever's going to be handling your money. And then beyond that, never too late to start. That Perfect. about summarize it? That summarizes. Perfect. Chris uh, Turchansky, president of ATB Investor Services. Thank you so much for coming in today. Uh, I hope we've helped some people. In fact, I know we have. Let's do this again sometime. That sounds great. Thanks a lot, Andrew. For the 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2.
on 630 Chad.